For me, fashion is a verb. So it's true fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. How was your secondhand September? It's not over yet. We're getting this episode out just in time. It's the first of two that look at the issues around textile waste from very different angles. And next week, we'll hear from Cindy Rhodes of Worn Again. She's an activist turned textile recycling innovator based in the UK. Now, it's no secret that I'm a fan of circularity and I get really excited about all the ways that we might reimagine the textile value chain to keep precious resources in the loop. But equally, it's no secret that we're nowhere near the scale at which that needs to happen to combat fashion's current waste crisis. Now, here's a quote from this week's guest, Liz Ricketts. Waste makes visible our separation from nature. Another one of hers, excess is something that has to be taught. So she's saying it it doesn't come naturally for us to be so wasteful. Now, this is all part of her discourse on what she calls waste colonialism, a story of exploitation driven by social injustice, power imbalances, and the continuation of historic colonialism. Liz co-runs the Orr Foundation. It's a registered charity and it operates in both the US, where she's from, and Ghana. And they say their mission, which is, and it's all intersectional, but they say it's to identify and manifest alternatives to the dominant model of fashion. Alternatives that bring forth ecological prosperity as opposed to destruction and that inspire citizens to form a relationship with fashion that extends beyond their role as consumer. I love that. Liz and I both absolutely hate the word consumer and being defined as consumers. You'll hear us talk about that. Now, since 2016, the Orr Foundation has been working on a research project that you might have heard of. It's called Dead White Man's Clothes, and it runs out of Cantamanto, the second-hand clothing market in Ghana's capital city of Accra. I think probably everyone listening will be familiar with the problems of fashion overproduction. As Liz points out, we don't just have a linear industry, we have an oversupplied linear industry. But... I'm going to hazard a guess that much of what Liz tells us in the following interview might be new to you. Maybe you already know about how large a proportion of donated old clothes from Europe, from the US, from Australia, from New Zealand is exported. But how about the detail of what happens to it after it leaves our shores? Now, Liz says that 15 million, let that sink in, 15 million pieces of secondhand clothing arrive in Cantamanto each week. And an estimated 40% ends up in landfill or, and this is the worst bit, would do if landfills were available. It's terrible, right? This is a story of how your old shirt or dress or pants might end up clogging drains in Accra or form part of this heavy rope of textiles in the ocean that's lurking under the sand like some, I don't know, like a horrible sea monster. Or smouldering on a waste mountain in an informal dump that's been on fire for months. Now, it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe your old clothes will get fixed up and sold on to live another life. It's complicated, as are the solutions. There's a lot to think about in this episode, and I want to thank Liz for taking the time to share her insights with us. One thing that didn't make the cut of this interview, which is really long because it's so good, but 
I did want to make mention of it. I asked Liz about journalists wanting to come to Cantamanto and interview people there. And also because I knew she wanted to make a film. So I was asking how that was going. And what she said really struck with me. She said, the people there dealing with the worst impacts of our waste, or the Kaye, the female porters, and you'll hear about them, they don't need more media do-gooders invading their privacy and trying to tell their story for them. She said everyone wants to spread awareness and fund movies and films and media, but that isn't actually change. That's just talking about change. Yikes, right? Now, we don't pay guests to come on this podcast, but last series I paid all the guest hosts to do the work that I normally do, or I made donations to nonprofits that they chose. For this episode, that made sense to me. So I've, I've donated what was left in our Patreon account to the Orr Foundation as a thank you to Liz and to help support the work they do on the ground. And I just, oh, actually on Patreon, I should tell you thank you to everyone who supported our work on Patreon and you've helped pay the Orr Foundation a donation to make this show. Uh, we're actually going to close it now, though, in order to focus on our upcoming wardrobe crisis membership, which I'll tell you more about very soon. But here, I just thought that I'd mention, if you can afford it, if you're looking to make a charitable donation in the fashion space, especially if you're a brand or you've got a spare chunk of cash, you can check out the or.org forward slash donate. That's the O-R, the or. Of course, you can find all the links as usual on thewardrobecrisis.com. But your money would fund grassroots projects that the OR Foundation runs there in Accra. Now... Let's hear from Liz Ricketts. <laughs> that intro is so long. If you thought that was long, wait to hear the interview. I'm ready. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Liz Ricketts. Thank you very much for making the time to talk with us. We're excited. Thank you, Claire. Thank you so much for having me. We're recording this in secondhand September. Also here in Australia, where I am, there's just been an extraordinary documentary aired on the TV news here, which we will come to, which tells the story of Cantamanto. But I, I want to start by just asking about words and definitions. And there's a reason for this, Liz. You're a, a beautiful writer, and I feel like you have worked out how to harness the power of words in your activism. And the Orr Foundation's Instagram, we'll share a link, is not your average grid of pictures. It's very detailed when it comes to captions. So I love it. I love how you write your activism out and don't just rely on the visual. <laughs> Thank you so much. That's very kind of you. I've never thought of myself as a writer, to be honest. So I was always much more of a visual person. But I also think with the work that we do, I worked in the fashion industry as well, so I know how misleading images can be. <laughs> and I think with the work that we do around waste colonialism, it's very important that people know what they are looking at because it's very easy to get the message twisted and to sort of perpetuate these stereotypes of polluted areas in the global south. And of course, that's not our mission or what we are trying to do. My relationship with writing is quite new. For me, it's just understanding that I have a responsibility to make sure that the images that we're putting out there have context. Context is extremely important. And Pollution porn is poverty porn. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand that connection. And we're not interested in sort of trafficking in those images and oversimplifying it. Our mission with our work is really to add nuance to a conversation that I think has been oversimplified. So words mm. have become necessary, but I wouldn't say it's actually perhaps a very tortured relationship for me <laughs> to write. 
but thank you for the compliment. Well, we're going to start with words and definitions. So if you will allow me, I thought I would throw some of these key words at you and ask you to define them for the listener. And the first one is consumers. You talk about let's stop defining ourselves as consumers, which is one of my things too. I hate that word. <laughs> yes. It's a word that haunts all of us. I think we live in a very consumer-centric society. And I think it can be silly a little bit for people to think about defining it. You know, it's, it's the air we breathe, it's the water we swim in. Um, but consumption itself, I think, is a word that's being misused, actually, at least when it comes to the fashion industry, because consume means to use up, to finish something, but we, you know, those of us who are upper and middle class people in the global north, we're barely wearing our clothes. <laughs> we are not using them up by any stretch of the imagination. You know, people are wearing their clothes seven times, using 20% of our wardrobe. So what we purchase is really underutilized. And this means, again, that we're not actually consuming or using up our clothing at all. We're just wasting the finite resources that are required to make new clothes. And at the same time, we're wasting our money. <laughs> mm, there's so much just even in that word. But I just want to sort of rapidly trot through these words. My second word is dead stock, which is a, it's such a buzzword now, right? It is such a buzzword. And I'm happy that a lot of designers are making use of dead stock. And I think this is one that the general public doesn't know so much about. We get a lot of questions about what it is. I mean, dead stock is just untold inventory, right? So it's typically not returns. It's not something that's ever touched the consumer. It's just waste before ever being purchased, right? And I think that this is a very important point that you're bringing up. Because the fashion industry has a dead stock problem. A lot of the brands that my students work for overproduce SKUs by 20 to 40% on purpose because they can't predict demand. And that's so important because we have an oversupplied industry. We don't just have a linear industry. We have an oversupplied linear industry. Can you just repeat that percentage? Because I find it absolutely startling. How much yes, do they course. commonly overproduce by? <laughs> So I hear this directly from my students who a lot of them work for big companies. I also taught design and they tell me that their companies are still intentionally overproducing each SKU by around 20 to 40%. And some of that, I mean, it's understandable. You can't predict exactly what someone is going to want, but we're not talking about small numbers, right? I think there was, what was the year I had written it down? In 2018, H&M famously had $4.3 billion mm. worth of unsold merchandise that is a lot of dead stock, right? And the fact that that didn't shut down the company is also something that we should really be concerned about. Absolutely. Okay. What about feedstock since we're on stock? Feedstock is just another term for raw resources. Um, it's the ingredients, the unprocessed material. Now we're talking about it as nutrients, the resources that go into the stuff that we consume. And this is a really important word, I think, because of what's happening in circularity so in the linear fashion economy, a lot of our feedstock is highly subsidized. So cotton and oil primarily, right? Mm -hmm. And through government subsidies, as well as slave labor, both past and present, the cost of these raw resources remains artificially cheap in fashion. And as a result, these resources like cotton are undervalued and I think often forgotten in this larger conversation. And the reason that this is important is because now with circularity, brands are trying to make circular products as cheap, if not cheaper, than linear products. And they want to do that by making waste 
a free feedstock. And that's very concerning to me. <laughs> but that is so interesting to me because I've definitely often used that phrase, let's redefine waste as a resource. And I, I'm going to come onto that in a moment because I've, I'd like to ask you more about that. But let's just finish my final phrase. It's technically a phrase, not a word. What does this mean? Dead white man's clothes. <laughs> well, currently it means the thing that's getting us a lot of hate mail and death threats in our email. Really? Um, yeah. Yes, it seems to have angered a certain subsection of individuals. But it comes from the fact that in Ghana, uh, secondhand clothing is called Obruni Wabu, which translates directly to dead white man's clothes or the white man has died clothes. And when clothing started flooding into Ghana in the 1960s, Ghanaians, they assumed that it was coming from deceased foreigners because there was so much of it and it was generally in pretty good condition. And of course, today, people in Accra and people in Kantamanto, they're experts on where this comes from. They don't have full visibility into it, which maybe we'll talk about later, but they know that it's donated. They know it's not coming from dead people and they know that people are barely wearing it, right? <laughs> but... This name is so important because it highlights this fact that excess is not an indigenous concept. Excess is something that has to be taught and something that has been taught to all of us. And then Dead White Man's Clothes, we use that name for our projects. It's a multimedia participatory research project that we launched in 2016 that's still ongoing. Again, it's it's a sort of controversial name. I, I am aware um, when we started it. And for us... Again, the origin story of a Wawu is part of it, but I do think that it's important to not depoliticize this narrative. And for us, this name also speaks to the colonial origins of the secondhand trade and the current dynamics that exist, as well as speaking to, I think, who we need to hold more responsible within this conversation. So two things there. So originally, it seemed obvious that these clothes must have been passed on because someone had passed away because why else would you get rid of good stuff, right? I mean, let's think about that for a moment. It's extreme, isn't it? Because we're so used to the opposite. We're so used to, I got bored with it, so I got rid of it. But in fact, it makes logical sense to think something must have happened to this person for them to offload all this stuff. Exactly. And when we talk to retailers in Condamanto, they're still shocked by it, to be honest. They will still tell us, you know, we'll ask, do you have anything to say to the people who donated the clothes? And they always say, we aren't like you. Like you are wearing things once or maybe not even wearing it at all. And we keep our things and we wear them for a very long time. Although that's changing, isn't it? It is and starting we'll come to change, to that. Yes. Mm. Was it right that you saw this phrase written in the market on a sign with someone's stall? Yeah, so Obruni Wawu is written on the archway, um, which is on the elder side of the market. So Kantmanto has many different sections. It's massive. And yeah, it's written on the archway. And then also, I mean, I've known about the name since I started going to Ghana over a decade ago. Okay, Kantmanto. Maybe some of our listeners have been there. Maybe they followed your work or read about it. Or if they are in Australia, as I mentioned, I know lots of people watched the documentary on the ABC. It was a, a Four Corners doco. The TV journalist was Linton Besser, and we'll share a link. But tell us about Cantamento. What is it? Where is it? And could you paint us a picture and take us there for those who haven't been? Yeah, so Cantamanto is the largest secondhand clothing market in West Africa, probably largest in the world, it's in central Accra, right in the heart of the city. 
First of all, Contamanto is many things. Again, our mission is very much to add nuance to this conversation. Contamanto is not good or bad. Secondhand is not good or bad, right? It is a supply chain. It is as complex as the firsthand or primary market. Um, but Contamanto, it's massive, right? So originally it sprung up on a railroad and it was quite small. Now it is huge. It's seven acres in size on the retailer side. And then the importer side is 15 acres, which is right next to it. So there are different parts of the market. <laughs> they all have very different names, um, but there's basically an interior market and then an outdoor market. On, on the interior of the market, there's 5,000 registered stalls. And within the market as a whole, there are 30,000 people who work there. And of course, obviously, what we are talking about is the buying and selling of clothes. So there are people doing that. But there's also music playing. There's radios blaring. <laughs> so many different things constantly. People are dancing. People organize around their political views here. People educate one another. People, again, are making things. There's cooking. There's everything that's going on. It's very much a community and very, from my perspective, uh, there's a lot of reciprocity and, and sort of a mutual aid network. And it can be really overwhelming. And my first trip to Contamanto, I did certainly wasn't able to see all that it is because I was overwhelmed by the sheer quantity of stuff. There is stuff everywhere, just piles of clothing everywhere. It is underneath your feet. It is going past your head. It is being thrown across the aisle in front of you. It is everywhere. But at other times and sort of now how I see it, I mean, Contamanto is my favorite place on the planet. It's, you know, I think is it? many times, you know, the, the best party you've ever been to. And it's very much a model of sustainability. The waste issue I see as very separate from what Contamanto actually represents, which is very important. And you asked about the different people in the market. So first... There's importers. So on the importer side, you have about 100 families who control that side of the market. They import bales from all over the world. And, you know, the containers can cost anywhere from like $15,000 to $40,000 a piece, meaning that they're not cheap. But importers generally make a good profit. They're the ones that are really gaining from this system. But still, I do want to point out that the trade is still supply driven, right? It's not like importers can go online and like add to cart. This is exactly what I want. This is what my customer wants. They're basically given a packing list. And that packing list is based off of what we in the global north decide to make, decide to consume and decide to give away right? So it is very much supply driven. And then you have the retailers. Retailers buy bales from the importers. And bales can cost anywhere from right now, it fluctuates, but around $75 to $500 a piece, again, coming from all different countries. And the retailers, basically, they buy these bales, they recommodify the goods. That's their mission is to try to take everything that's inside and resell it. Sometimes that involves selling things online. Sometimes it involves a lot of rehabilitation, cleaning, mending, clipping threads, things like that. The retailers are very much experts in what their customer wants. Each of them kind of has their own brand, which is based off of their own curation. So people come to them because they know the type of bale that they buy and sell. And then also because they know how that person is going to merchandise. 
So the retailers are busy recommodifying these bales, right? Sometimes that's just reselling, but sometimes they also tap into this upcycling network that exists in Contamanto, where you have every skill set that we would ever dream of of having in a mall in the global north, right? You have tailors and seamstresses, you have notion shops, you have people who are experts in sewing machine repair. Then you also have cobblers, people over dyeing, people upcycling, and you have designers also in the market. So it's very important to understand that Contamanto, to my knowledge, is the largest resale and upcycling economy in the world. And, you know, for me, that's very, very obvious that that's something that we're missing from the global north, even in my own daily life. Like I literally take my clothes to Contamanto from the United States to be repaired. And especially my shoes, I don't have a cobbler anywhere near where I'm living right now. But to make this entire resale and upcycling culture run is the Kaye. And Kaye is a name that means female headporter or directly translates to she who carries the burden. And Contamanto's Kaye, some of them are as young as eight, honestly. They're getting no, younger, really? unfortunately. But most of the ones who work in Contamanto are 14 to eight, 30 years old because the weight of what they're carrying is so immense. And what they do is that they are the link between the importers and the retailers. Hang on a minute. The weight of what they're carrying is so intense. Just expand on that. So each bale that comes into Contamanto weighs 120 to 200 pounds. And again, these girls are sometimes as young as eight, often 14 years old. That's their entire body weight, if not more, right? And they typically are traveling for over a mile going between the importer side to the retailer side, literally head carrying these bales so that they can be resold so that our things can find another home. And even though they're traveling so far, and even though it's such horrible, difficult work, they're only paid between 30 cents to $1 per trip, which is really not enough to meet their daily expenses. And it's backbreaking work, quite literally. And um, we've known Kaye who have been killed because their necks break under the weight of the bales. Oftentimes also these women are carrying their babies wrapped around their backs. And sometimes, you know, the bales often fall and hit limbs. You know, I've known lots of Kaye who've had a broken foot and they've still been carrying this weight because otherwise they will starve and they they won't have somewhere to stay. But I think the the most tragic is what happens to the children because sometimes the Kaye are, you know, they're all very careful, of course, when they're carrying the bales, but sometimes the bales do fall backwards and have killed the children. And what? yeah, it's a situation that not many people are very aware of. And we, we do a lot of work with the Kaye. We have a lot of different initiatives, um, which I'm happy to talk about. But recently we launched a chiropractic a research and treatment program with a local chiropractor in Accra who's so incredible, Dr. Dordor. She's amazing. She's just really given so much already to the program. And we're basically taking a hundred of these girls who work in Contamanto carrying the bales through this program. And what was really sobering for us as a team was that in the first week with just the first five girls, there was a young woman who's only 18 years old and When the doctor showed the x-ray, like the entire team was in shock um, because basically it was completely deteriorated. And the doctor told her that if she continued to carry for even one more week, that she would probably die or um, 
yeah, face debilitating pain for the rest of her life. And that was just in the first five out of a hundred. And I think for us, yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's, it's obviously something that should not be happening, but even for me, seeing it, hearing these stories, meeting these girls, it's still shocking every time that we talk about it or as we're going mm-hmm. through this program. So, but they are essential to the secondhand clothing trade. I mean, I think that's what's most important for people to understand is, I mean, these girls are in debt slavery. It's fatal labor and contamanto would not exist. <laughs> Our clothes would not be resold, would not find another home, would not, you know, be upcycled if it wasn't for their labor. I've never heard that story or those stories before. And listening to you talk there, it's obviously very emotional for you. But just hearing it for the first time, I feel sickened and really sad. And I'm sure that listeners will relate to this. We see the images of our fashion habits and our wasteful ways destroying the environment. And we know how devastating that is. But I don't think we've got any idea of the human impacts of this story of waste. I think we're very familiar. We've read so many times of how terrible this industry can be to female garment workers and child labor. But does anyone even know the story of what our waste is doing to women on the other side of the world from where we are throwing these things mindlessly into a black plastic bag and dropping it off at the charity shop. I just don't think we have any idea. It makes me cross. I don't know what I'm even saying, except that I feel very uncomfortable, which is right about this. Yeah, we sh- we should. And it's very complex. Mm. It is a local issue in Ghana. It's also a global one. I and mean, most of these girls are migrants from the northern part of Ghana, which is a region that was intentionally underdeveloped by the British, who also, under colonialism, used access to secondhand goods and access to Western-style clothing to stoke regional divides, intentionally cutting off people in the north from having Western-style clothing because they wouldn't convert to Christianity. Really? And so most of these women are coming from that region. And I think it's just, when we talk about colonialism, I feel like people get very, you know, people react very strongly and they, but this is not a long time ago. And that's just the facts. Like we just have to understand this is what in my parents' generation. So this is not a long time ago that we were talking about. Liz, you said that you'd been getting hate mail for using the name dead white man's clothes from what sort of people, people who are angry that they feel ashamed of colonialism or they feel like you're making them feel bad. What, (laughs) what kinds of people? I mean, I don't pretend to understand it quite, but I think it just, it's very in your face, of course. Cranky white people. Yeah. Oh yes. It's all, it's, yes, it's white people. But there's also a lot of people who are upset with what we are talking about (laughs) because the secondhand clothing trade has been something that has been unquestioned for a very long time. And I want to be very clear that there are a lot of people in this industry in the global North who do incredible work. They work their butts off, but we can't just not talk about it. Absolutely. Let's talk about the politics of waste before we get into more of the stories from Cantamanto. You've said that fashion waste is compounded by exploitation, not by a lack of recycling technology. I wrote that phrase down. I think it's just, again, you're, you're calling out these conversations that we just don't have. 
the general consensus is that if only we could improve material to material recycling, I'm quoting myself here, if only we could bust that number of less than 1% of material, used materials recycled into new material, we could completely change this story. It's all about the evolution of new tech solutions and then we'll be good. Well, no, (laughs) that's wrong, isn't it? I mean, I'm simplifying it. I do know that's wrong. But do you want to tell us why that view is too narrow and how you see exploitation at the center of this recycling conversation? Sure. So I think it is a very important point. And I think brands have done a very good job of convincing all of us that the waste crisis exists because we don't have recycling technology. And that's not accurate. Again, we talked about dead stock. We talked about the fact that they're overproducing on purpose. There are very few people who are winning in this situation meaning fast fashion and sort of big fashion. And to me, what I've learned from Contamanto, right, is that sustainability isn't about material preservation Mm. and circularity has to be about more than material preservation. Circularity has to be about remembering why we need one another. That is how we connect and that is how we upcycle things. That's how we put in the time and in the care and in the love to take care of what already exists. Do you think that we tend to separate the social and the environmental in these conversations? That we tend to say, well, circularity, that's a that's an environmental issue. So we can talk about tech fixes, we can talk about materials and the environmental impacts of those things. And then social just lives somewhere else in our minds. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, tech is easy, right? Um, that doesn't force us to confront anything about ourselves. And I think this question, you know, it's funny because I've basically become like a radical person for saying that there's too much clothing, <laughs> which is so silly. There's too much clothing, y'all. Like, that's just a thing. That's true. <laughs> It's not radical. <laughs> and <laughs> you are shocking, Liz. How could you? Where'd you come up with that? But this idea, I think it's just, I've never really had this conversation. So I'm glad we're having it now about people and planet. So I spent my whole life saying people and planet and my whole life on panels trying to explain to people what we mean by ethical fashion or sustainability. And I've got a little kind of entry level explanation that I use. We've got a new online fashion course, Wardrobe Crisis Academy, where I try to invite people into this conversation about sustainable fashion at a real entry level 101. We want you to come into this conversation. And we begin by saying, we know it's imperfect, but sustainability is this umbrella term. And it means that we need to look at people and planet. But even that language separates the two, Mm -hmm. doesn't it? Absolutely. Waste makes visible our separation from nature. We are the only species that creates waste, meaning a byproduct that poisons us and poisons the ecosystem that we rely on. And I think within circularity, this conversation is also getting warped by the separation of the technical and the biological sort of path. Do you? Yes. And I also just think that there is this fascinating with recycling um, that is very strange to me. I've seen real recycling and it is not, it does not look like the H&M loop video. Okay. (laughs) It is disgusting. It is not something that we should be holding up and sort of thinking as the pinnacle of where we're going. But for me, backing well, off of Hang that, on a minute. Why, why do you think it's disgusting? What do you mean? Explain. I mean, most of the recycling that I spent my time around is informal plastic recycling in Ghana. 
And it's a very crude process. You chop stuff, you melt stuff, you extrude stuff, you chop it again, you melt it, you extrude it. That's what you do. It's black, it's gross, there's horrible fumes, it's dangerous, it's loud. No one wants to be, I mean, has anyone been to a recycling facility? You should go in your local community to a recycling facility and pay attention to who the people are who are working on the assembly line. I really think it's so interesting. I want to pick you up as well on, you think that we get sort of locked up in this idea of this distinction between technical and biological nutrients, but we do need to separate the streams if we're going to get into the techie side of it in order to facilitate effective recycling, surely, because if you contaminate plastic with natural fibers, it's more difficult to separate it, et cetera. I know that's separate to, not that we want to be bogged down by separation, but that that does feel quite far removed from this conversation we're having about people and the visceral nature of filthy recycling when you actually get up and close with it. But I do think (laughs) that those separation of nutrients as a kind of guiding light to how we can deal with materials is important. Do you not? Yeah, I think this, I'm not saying that the separation isn't useful. I'm Mm. saying that we can't pretend that we can just juggle stuff in the air forever. I feel like the conversation around recycling and the technical loop, it preserves this idea that we're above nature and that we can control nature. And Mm. what I'm saying is that, again, waste makes visible our separation from nature. We need to connect more with nature. And I think we need to really embrace decay and decomposition as part of this, or at least not constantly be holding up recycling as more important than those processes. Brands have been very successful at convincing us that our waste crisis is because we have a lack of recycling technology and not because they are extracting profit by making very cheap things that then we feel is affordable to throw away. And this is a lot of this has to do with the fact that our disposability culture is only possible because we've treated other people as if they are disposable. And by not paying a living wage, clothing is artificially cheap, right? So again, I will say that again, people throw away their clothes because the price tells them that their shirt is as disposable as a paper cup. Right. Absolutely. Donate the old and they buy the new because fast fashion is basically as cheap as buy and use clothing at this point. So by not paying garment workers a living wage, again, we make it profitable for brands to overproduce and we make it affordable for people, middle and upper class people, to overconsume. But I think this is something that I think really gets sort of left out of the conversation is really important to me, which is that. Because we don't pay garment workers a living wage, they are indebted to the system that exploits them. And they do not have the right of exit to leave that system that is producing the waste. And this is something that we talk a lot about with retailers in Contamanto because retailers in Contamanto are in the same position. They are also indebted to a system that is exploiting them. Most of them are in debt. And I think... Most of the people listening to this are going to be consumers, so I don't want to brush off the importance of this conversation, but I fundamentally believe that change will happen faster if the people who are being exploited understand better the system that they are a part of. I'm very interested in sort of helping garment workers connect with retailers in Contamanto, for instance. And some of the work we've done around that has been really interesting and revelatory. We had a conversation with one of our friends, Abena, who's a retailer in Contamanto recently, and we were in her stall. With I was with one of my colleagues, Sammy, and we were in her um, store and we were looking through the clothing she had and we picked up a garment. 
And we looked at the label and we said, how much money do you think the CEO of this company makes? And she said, oh, I don't know. It must, it must be a lot of money though. And we Googled it for her. The CEO is a billionaire. And she was shocked. She didn't know that it was that much money, of course, but she had still guessed that it was a lot of money. And then we looked at the tag again and we looked at this is where it was made from. So she knew that it had come from the UK, but we said, you know, this is where it was sewn or at least part of it was sewn. And it was in Bangladesh. And we said, how much do you think the person made or earned sewing this garment? And she said, oh, they must make a lot of money too. Like if the CEO makes a lot of money, they must be making a lot of money. And we looked it up for her and we showed her, you know, we said the garment worker is probably only earning, you know, $4 a day, making less than 10 cents, you know, to sew the specific thing. And Abena makes around 10 to $20 a week in profit. And I'll never forget it because her face just, it froze. And there was just realization that came over her and she looked at Sammy and she said, so we're all just a joke. That's what she said. Gosh. Whoa. Yeah. It really breaks my heart. I think these conversations are really important, but they're really hard. I, I feel like, I mean, I kind of want to say, what can we do? Because I know that that's how the listener feels. I'm always thinking about, you know, that's how I feel. You're doing something, Liz, you know what you can do. What can we do? Is, um, and I wasn't going to ask you this because I always feel it's so elementary, like, oh, give us some tips. How can we fix the broken <laughs> system? It's just not that easy. But I'm going to ask you because I feel the the weight of worrying that we don't know how to fix or change this as individuals. I feel it. I can feel it myself and I can feel you all listening, thinking it. What do you think, Liz? Is there something that we can do as individuals to be architects of rebuilding this system into a new form? Because so much of this conversation around waste seems to end up there, doesn't it? Where people, I know that I have so many messages after this with people saying, I don't want to be part of this. So what do I do? Because I've got all these clothes that I want to donate because I have I can't wear them anymore. What am I going to do with them? I don't want to be feeding into this feral system that exploits people, but I'm a cog in the machine. What do you think? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to acknowledge that, you know, we can't be so hard on ourselves. Um, we can though. <laughs> I don't know, Liz. I think we can, because I also think that collectively we, we've turned away. What I mean by that is that even for me, and I toggle between these two worlds, which I see as very different worlds. And honestly, it's starting to make me bonkers because when mm. I'm in Ghana, there's clarity. I can see what's going on. When I come back to the United States, I have to face the delusion of our situation. I call greenwashing delusion marketing. There's so much messaging at us constantly to buy into the system, right? And so that's what I mean by not taking it personally. Like you have to understand the system that you're a part of and the messaging that you are receiving. And so I think for me, the first bit of advice that I always give people is to take a year off of buying anything new and even better, take a year off of buying anything at all, whether it's used or whatever, and go through your closet 
and pull out at least five items that you're going to commit to doing something new with. So maybe you're going to find a tailor in your local community. Maybe you're going to get your shoes repaired. Maybe you're going to find a dyer. Maybe you're going to learn natural dyes and over dye something that has a stain. Maybe you're going to learn to mend something. So, you know, I think there's this conversation sometimes we're big proponents of degrowth and um, low production bo- volumes by at least 80%. And of course, people always ask us about what that means for garment workers and for employment within the fashion industry. And for me, I look at what's happening and I see that we have less people on the planet that know how to sew than ever before. Um, we've never need these, needed these skills more in terms of maintaining our stuff and upcycling our stuff. So invest in that for yourself, learn those skills and use them and you will form a completely new relationship with your stuff. And then on the other hand, try to look at the messaging you're receiving. Try to understand that the fashion industry has created a false sense of scarcity and lack. And what I hope for you is that as you listen to this, allow yourself to feel whatever you want to feel. But at the end of it, if you can commit to taking responsibility for the things that you have, you can reframe too much clothing as abundance. And we can understand that there's enough clothing on the planet for the rest of our lives, for everyone on the planet. And we can let that be a good thing. And we can figure out how to recirculate that. And that can be beautiful. That can fuel a whole new industry and a whole new way of being and working. Thank you for um, for bringing that back to hope. I appreciate that, Liz. I really do. I want to talk about what the fashion industry can do because there are practical things that the fashion industry can do. In January 2021, you published an open letter to the fashion industry in Atmos magazine. You argued that there can be no sustainability revolution without justice throughout the global supply chain. And you talked about the fashion industry potentially paying ecological reparations. Cantamato sees 15 million secondhand garments a week. Would you like to tell us, Liz, approximately what percentage of those garments leave Cantamanto as waste? Yes. So Cantamanto sees 15 million garments coming through it every single week. There are between up to 4 million that immediately leave the market and to be redistributed to other markets, other countries, whatever. So between 11 million and 15 million are what we are talking about. And of that, 40% leaves the market as waste. And it's not because the clothing is unwearable. A lot of the clothing that leaves is wearable in the most basic of senses, but it's not something you probably wanted to wear. And so why would someone in Ghana want to wear it? There's so much clothing that there's not an incentive to buy the lower quality stuff, right? And this has really corrupted a lot of what's happening in Contamanto because A, you have retailers going into debt because there's less lower quality stuff. It's around 18% of the average bail is what they call first selection, which is the high quality stuff. And they have to make 70 to 90% of their money back off of that 18%. And consumers come to the market and they know how the market works. So if I come to the market and I go to our friend Abena, who I talked about, and she's out of first selection, I'm more likely to come back the next day when she opens a new bale than I am to buy Mm. the lower quality stuff. Mm. I mean, you would. Okay. So where does this low quality or rejected or destroyed or useless or terrible or unsellable stuff end up. There's a a post and we'll share a link to it on your Instagram, 
a video which shows a dump in the informal settlement of Old Fatima, which is home to about 80,000 people, by the way, and it's basically a hill of garbage. And you say that this hill is about 60% made of clothing waste, so it's textiles. It's a hill of garbage, and on this hill there are cows trying to graze. And talking about getting cross, this actually made me cry. It really did. Watching cattle trying to eat through piles of plastic clothing. And the stump site's next to a river and the river empties into the sea. As we all know, the sea is downhill from everywhere. So yeah. this is a story of environmental despoilment and filth and it's fashion's fault. Where does it end up then? And what do you want the fashion industry to do about it? Let's talk about ecological reparations. Okay. I mean, first of all, I think it's interesting that you, you know, noticed the cattle and were so touched by that. Because for me, when I first started going to these dump sites, I was really scared of the animals, to be honest. And now I greet them. And they they come up and like nuzzle me when I, when I was on top of the mountain with the ABC correspondent with Linton. One of the babies came up and was nuzzling me. And I think he was like, oh, I don't know what's going on. I know that this is idyllic rubbish anyway, because I've seen feedstock lots. However, in our mind's eye, we think of cattle grazing on a green field. Yeah. And it's now they're trying to find whatever they can, you know, scrap from the garbage. And as it shows in the video, and as we've talked about, it's a 30 foot or more. It's grown a lot in the last year, but I can't give you an exact amount. But it's a 30 foot tall mountain. Basically, it's over 60% clothing waste. And, you know, Linton made a really good observation when I was there with him, basically saying it's obvious what's happening because you can see that the clothing is holding up this mountain. Like if you go to the side of it, you can see that it's the clothing that's stopping it from toppling over into the water. And when I've been there over the last year, it's been on fire every single time because it's grown so much that the only way to make space for more stuff is to burn it. And so they're basically burning the face of the dump site that's right next to the water. And it's a very eerie experience to sort of walk along that. But also one of the things that happened recently when I was on the dump site, there was a fire that started and the waste pickers ran over. And I looked down and I mean, it's not funny, but it was sort of ironic at the time. They were smoking while putting out the fire and putting out the fire literally just looks like taking moist trash and putting it on top of burning trash. Oh and my I was goodness. just like, this is, this is not it. We also know that then, as I said, the ocean's downhill hill from everywhere. And I've seen the footage of you on the beach pulling out what essentially are like ropes of seaweed from the sand and the edge of the water that are just tangled textiles. Yeah. So a lot of the clothing, so some clothing was going to a formal landfill called Pone, but that exploded in August of 2019. But even before that, a lot of clothing was being handled informally and was ending up in the ocean. And it's basically goes through the open sewer system. Some of it is dumped directly in the ocean or directly on the beach. And it's millions of garments. Basically, by the time they make their way to sea, they've formed what we call tentacles. They can be anywhere from like eight feet to 30 feet long, typically three feet in diameter. And they've soaked up all sorts of industrial and human excrement on their way out to sea. And then they've also like picked up a bunch of plastic and metal. They're very dangerous objects. Like for the children who are swimming, they brush up against these metal objects and the clothing as well. And when they wash up to sea, there's nothing to do with them. So they just get burned and 
the real daunting thing is what we can't see because mm-hmm. these tentacles kind of, you know, they come up and go back out with the tide. And so the only thing to assume is that there's a lot on the seafloor that we can't see. So Liz, it's pretty obvious that reparations would be well earned, shall we say. I mean, whenever we see this kind of destruction, I think it always makes me think of, well, polluter pays. We don't have that legislation in place, but we should have, right? So what would it mean, do you think, then for the fashion industry to pay reparations? How how could that work? I mean, I, I've I've got that phrase from some of your work. You said you want the fashion industry to pay ecological reparations to communities such as Cantamanto. How would it work? <laughs> Is it possible? Is it possible <laughs> without force? I'm not so sure. But Yes, it is. Our goal is to achieve ecological reparations for at least an aspect of the community. And I want to go into exactly why, right? Mm. Because it's, again, not just the environmental damage that's happening, which I think can be hard to quantify, but what we can quantify is the financial losses, the health impacts, right? This waste isn't just an environmental issue. When it gets dumped in the gutter, it wraps around itself, it clogs the gutter. That leads to an increase in malaria and cholera. Then when it makes its way out to sea, it's not just polluting the marine environment, it's making life very, very difficult for the fishermen who live there. So these are canoe fishermen and the community that we work with. It's already one of the most dangerous jobs in the world. And to avoid these masses of clothing, they have to go further out to sea, which makes their job more dangerous. Plus the clothing has basically destroyed all the fish in their immediate environment. But then also these clothing masses literally catch on their nets. We've talked to fishermen who've almost capsized because the clothing gets stuck and they can't pull their net back up. And then in Old Fatima, again, the damage is not just environmental. Old Fatima to me is the epitome of waste colonization. When people think about waste colonization, they think about the initial dumping or the initial sending of the clothes, foreign waste ending up in a different country, right? But for me, waste colonization is what happens next. And that is the subsequent sort of land grab and cultural erasure that happens. Because what is happening in Old Fatima is because this waste is there and it's a vulnerable community, 80,000 people live there. Many of them are Kaye, many of them are waste pickers. Many of them are migrants from other parts of Ghana and they're a very vulnerable community, right? And so this waste is blamed on them. It's used to disenfranchise them and it's very, very real. I would think it was three weeks ago now, there was a mass demolition in this community. So even when Linton came to do the ABC piece, there was one of our friends, Musa. He often helps us in the community he lives there and his home was demolished. A lot of people's homes were demolished. A lot of people's businesses were demolished in the name of ecological regeneration. So it's a project that dispossessed thousands of people of their property forcibly, literally bulldozed their homes. And what does that look like? That looks like people not having their phone, not having access to their ID, not having any of their money, obviously then losing their home, sleeping out on the streets. And this immediately impacts our community, right? Like we've already, several of the Kaye that we work with have faced a lot of sexual violence because they're sleeping on the street. And there was one girl recently who was run over by a car because she was sleeping on the streets and we, you know, helped cover hospital bills, which is how we know, but that's just what's coming to our attention. So it's much, much worse than that. And those are things that can be quantified. And Again, 
this is what waste colonization looks like, right? Waste colonization looks like the waste being blamed not on people who live a life of excess, but on people who figure out how Mm. to survive despite being dumped on. And I really am tired of the fashion industry using other people's resilience as an excuse for them to continue to do the wrong thing because that is what they're doing and that's what they've been doing. Could you tell us really briefly how Ghana got here? Like how did secondhand clothing from the global north end up even coming to Ghana in the first place? So the secondhand clothing trade is rooted in colonialism. Under colonial rule, Ghanaians were expected to conform to professional dress codes, Western dress codes, right? And this was you know, disseminated through education, through religion. And then also the British were very happy to make money off of it through their hand-me-downs. <laughs> that is not demand. That is not an expression of demand. That is a survival mechanism, right? And, and that is the root of this. And that is where I grew from. But the sort of import of all these clothes really took an oh, uptick yeah. in the 1960s, right? Is that when, when more and more of these clothes started to come into Ghana? And then at that time, they were kind of considered quite fabulous because they were better quality and they were, I don't know, at the time then the sorts of clothes that would come in were maybe considered fashionable or aspirational. Is that right? Yes, exactly. So the trade really picked up in the 1960s in part because of what's happening in the global north, right? This is the rise of mass production, credit cards becoming normalized, people are buying more clothes, we need an outlet for that stuff. And ideally it's a guilt-free outlet. Secondhand clothing trade is very good for that. It's always been a for-profit enterprise born of the global north excess. And then in Ghana, Ghana gained independence in 1957, but because of colonization, wearing Western-style clothing signaled proximity to power. So it had that kind of cachet to it, right? It became a ticket for people to enter certain rooms, get certain jobs, all of that. And I will say it's very important that people understand that there's always been resistance within Ghana and Kwame Nkrumah, the I think very much invested in the local industry and very much was about sort of blending quote unquote traditional and modern and basically thought that, you know, the global North doesn't have the right to define what that is for Ghanaians, but it was really that the colonial roots of it. And then the 1980s with um, structural adjustment policies that decimated the local textile industry. So Liz, I have to ask how you got there because you're not a Ghanaian. You're in New York now doing this this interview. You split your time between the US and Ghana. But how did you end up there? I know you studied fashion. (laughs) For someone who's a fashion radical, you actually were a fashion student. And I've seen a picture of you. Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I I like to research my guests and try and find out everything I can find out about them before I see them. And you were in a style like you interview <laughs> oh, with no. Elissa Goodkind, who I've actually interviewed on the first series of this podcast, I love who her. I love. She's great. But it was yeah. interesting to me because it's a very long time ago. But you see, young Liz, and you are super fashion. You are into a Japanese ruffle and yeah. also into an upcycled bit of vintage. But talk to us about just how you got to Ghana and how you made that change. Yes, I was very much into the fashion of it, which is. Funny, because today I would say I don't really care about fashion, but I care a lot about clothes. And yeah, <laughs> very much me. I had, I'll give you a little story. The One of the sort of administrators of my school used to tell people that he was afraid of me and he would refer to me as that opinionated girl with thigh-high boots. 
<laughs> so I was always very opinionated. That is true. But I was very much into the fashion of it. You know, I had very conceptual collections, talked about string theory, all that sort of stuff. People didn't really understand, but they looked good. Um, so how did I end up here? I know that. I mean, I do know that you went and worked in the industry a little bit and that you worked for ethical brands and that you obviously found yourself quite shocked by the way the fashion system worked globally and in the US. But what took you to Accra? What took me to Accra was essentially a crisis of figuring out how I could possibly work in this industry once I had discovered sort of a lot of the issues with it and discovered what I felt I hadn't been taught And so I started offering my services to basically anyone who would have me. I started basically consulting with um, lots of different companies. And one of these companies was a fair trade fashion company that was based in both Ghana and the United States. And that's how I first went to Ghana. And actually, I went to Contamanta within the first three days of my first trip to Ghana over 10 years ago. And again, for me in the beginning, it was very overwhelming. But I was there to upcycle stuff um, with a local designer. and. I mean, to be totally frank, like my privilege slaps me in the face every time I'm in Contamanto. I mean, Contamanto is my happy place. It is the most constant force in my adult's life. I've taken many different jobs and I've always come back to Contamanto for the last, you know, sort of decade. And so it's a very special place for me. But when I'm there, I understand that I have immense privilege to be able to travel so freely between these two places. And then also I'm looking at the clothing, right? I'm looking at our friends who are retailers and I'm seeing them sort clothing that was made, you know, all over the world. Clothing (laughs) that comes in these bales has traveled all over the world from fiber to, you know, mill to cut and sew, et cetera, donation. And then somehow ends up in Ghana And at the same time, retailers don't enjoy the same freedom of movement as the material that they become custodians for. And that really, really bothers me. And so I feel I have an immense responsibility that the least I can do as someone who has this privilege is to keep coming back. I wanted to end by asking you on your mission and where you hope to see this headed. But perhaps before you tell us that, Just touch on the kind of tension with being a white woman in Ghana and how important it is not to speak for or on behalf of the people that you work with. Yeah, absolutely. Again, Kantamata is a very special place to me, a very intimate place for me. But that doesn't mean that I've earned the right to tell Ghanaian stories. And there's a big difference. And what I really tried to do, and I'm sure that I fail at it at times, I'm a very flawed individual, but what I tried to do is to help translate the sort of in-between because I, I've learned so much from Contamanto and I think it's such a gift. And if I can share that with people from my own culture and from my own country and help them to heal from being consumers above being anything else, then you know that's really my goal. From the um, outspoken girl in the thigh-high boots to the... <laughs> outspoken woman in the probably flat sneakers show us your feet what have we got on oh, I don't even have I have socks. barefoot socks. socks in the socks mm. you've spent the last 10 years working in this space as a formidable activist Liz I mean the, I can't count the amount of times that I've been told about the work of the Orr Foundation and about the impacts that you're having it's tremendous why don't you end by just telling us your mission and your message and where you see this headed 
Yeah. So, I mean, my message right now, I guess, is that there's too much clothing in the world. I really would like if people would understand that and that we are going to fail at replacing new clothing with old clothing unless we slow down the production of new clothing. Mm. But in terms of the work that we are doing right now, we're working in solidarity with the Consumento community to catalyze what we're calling a justice-led circular economy. And so that's one where technology is a partner. It's not the goal. It's one where, you know, we're building cooperatives around um, recycling and making sure that there's profit sharing and making sure that we're prioritizing accompanying people out of debt so that they can better advocate for themselves within this whole situation. And we basically operate on three planes. So we are this month actually opening a lab in Accra, which again is for recycling and decomposition, exploring those two pathways with the community. And we'll also be training a lot of CAIA in those material experiments and at the lab. And what I'm excited about is that we're operating on a three to four month cycle. So we're choosing one garment because we believe garment types are material types. <laughs> and we are choosing one garments that we are trying to make whatever we can out of for three to four months and turning our lab into a showroom. And then we start the cycle all over again. And then we also do a lot of work with CAIA. So we have direct relief programs, um, which are very important. People diminish the role of that. But if people are starving, you can't talk to them about their future. You have to provide basic necessities, right? So direct aid, food, healthcare, things like that. And then also have a peer-to-peer -peer education program or mentoring program because a lot of women working as KIA aren't aware of, of what they can do. They don't know that women can do a lot of different types of jobs. So we introduce them to female entrepreneurs in Accra. And then some of those are transitioning into apprenticeships, which is really exciting, uh, including with us, but also with a lot of female entrepreneurs and a lot of times in the fashion industry in Accra. And we have a storytelling workshop. So we're training Kaye in photography so that they can tell their own stories. And then we also have the chiropractic program that I told you about. So that's mm -hmm. the chiropractic treatment and research program, which is also coupling with the apprenticeship program. Because every single week that we've run this program, at least one girl has decided to quit their job and we're helping them transition into new jobs. And then the third area we work is just advocacy. So that's engaging with brands. <laughs> Which sometimes How's is that part go? of what makes me feel bonkers. Um, I mean, I love the rogue people inside brands who bring me in. <laughs> I did this presentation the last time I was in Ghana, right after I came from the burning landfill. I had to go to a hotel to use reliable internet. And I sat down and I gave this presentation to this massive fashion company. And it was their marketing department and sales department. And I was like, I'm literally telling people that there's too much clothing to the group whose only job is really to sell more clothing. So <laughs> I don't know. I hope that it, I hope that it's um, touched some of them. But for me, the most unnatural thing about fashion is not its materials. It's the consolidation of wealth and the consolidation of ideas. And even I see that within design, right? A lot of my design students can't get jobs and it's not because we don't need designers. There's this very strange narrative that there's too many design schools and too many people studying design. That's not true. It's just that all the jobs are being sucked up by these big companies where they don't even hire people who went to fashion. Most of my students are like 
the only people on their whole team that actually know how to sew anything within these companies. You're a radical rat bag who wants to change everything, aren't you? Every single part of it, (laughs) which I I love. (laughs) I do want to change a lot of it. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you. Because I love you.